And good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End from, for this June 20th, I believe it is. Uh, and looking forward to uh, another good week of uh, Bible study here on Digital Bible Study. Appreciate you tuning in uh, and being a part of the show this morning. Um, we here on From the Deep End uh, take two hours out of every every morning that we are here together, every Monday through Thursday from 8 to 10 a.m. Uh, to uh, just sit around and talk about the Bible with each other a little bit. The first hour of the program, it is our practice uh, to um, just uh, sit around and answer your Bible questions or your Bible thoughts, whatever comments or questions that you might have. Um, we uh, try to entertain those and give you the best Bible answer. Well, when I'm, when I'm here by myself, the best Bible answer that I can. Um, as I try to remind you and let everybody know, this is, um, well, this is a, a time where I always reserve the right to say, I do not know. Uh, and that is a, a perfectly good answer for me. Um, but I do at least try in the process of saying, I don't know, at least to give you some hint of where you might turn in your Bible to at least start your investigation of it. If I can, can't always do that because sometimes I just really don't know. Uh, but we try to do our best to give you, um, uh, a, a good Bible basis foundation for the answer to your question. So if you have any of those, uh, you can go ahead and start putting those into the comment section. Uh, we will um, uh, try to get to those here in just a couple, a couple of minutes, try to start working our way through some of those. And so we invite your participation in the program. That way you all are very good about uh, keeping my mind sharp, giving me stuff to talk about every morning. So I do appreciate that. Uh, second hour of the program, uh, you should know by now, at least our regular viewers do, we are in the middle of a study of the book of First Peter, where I say in the middle, we're, at, we're still actually uh, in chapter one, about halfway through chapter one or so, and we will pick up at the nine o'clock hour with that um, that portion of the uh, of the discussion. So um, um, looking forward to, uh, to that, um, and uh, that's where we'll be in the second hour. This week, coming up on Digital Bible Study, got a full week here. I think we have the full schedule on tap. Uh, we have with us this week, um, tonight we have Eric Garner, uh, Thursday night, or, or uh, Tuesday night rather, we have um, Eric Thornton, and then uh, Wednesday, or, thir or what did I just say? Did I say Tuesday night or Thursday night? Tuesday night we have Eric Thornton, um, and then on Thursday, of course, it's Greg, uh, Greg's week with the Greg and Robbie uh tag team that we have going on on Thursdays. Uh, it's, it's Greg's week this week, so we look forward to having Greg back with us. Uh, and this Friday evening, we have been planning this for a few weeks now, trying to pull it together. Um, we're going to have a, a group discussion on um, uh, the importance of the church. Uh, it's a topic Eric brought up and wanted to talk about a few weeks ago, and we finally found a place in the schedule where Eric is going to be here, and I'm going to be here, and, and so on. And we have, well, actually, uh, I think a uh, I think Eric Garner is going to be on it. I don't remember if Eric Thornton agreed to it or not. I can't remember, but Cameron Freeman will be with us as they have been in the past on some of those group discussions. Uh, and possibly also uh, Stephen Ford and Joshua Cantrell. Uh, so a big group coming in on Friday if everybody's able to make it. Uh, we're looking forward to a really good time on Friday evening. So put put that on your, on your calendar as we uh, think about having one of those uh, panel discussions. I've got that booked for two weeks in case we want to come back to it, which will be uh, Friday, July 4th, or not July 4th, uh, Friday, July 1st. Um, so, and by the way, we are off July 4th, the Monday, Monday, July 4th. We will not, uh, we won't, we won't be having connect and 
I probably will not be doing from the deep end that day. Uh, I think Adam was well. We'll see. I, I probably won't be doing it. I will see though. Um, so that's that's where we got going on the schedule this week. Uh, I don't. I did not hear anything about Daryl and, and his um, um, uh, procedures and all that Friday. If he's able to go, go through those, and so I don't know about the state of uh, Truth Tuesday and his program today, or, or, or not today, but this week. So I'll try to let you know if I hear anything here is, is when, whenever I do. Um, and then, by the way, uh, let me just throw this in here because I just think about the schedule this week and think about Marlon's show on um, uh, Friday. Uh, let me just one more time give a good shout out to Brother Marlon Ratana from Costa Rica. I remembered over the week. I, I've, I've misnationed him. Is that a thing? Because we can miss everything these days with people. I misnationed him like four times and I finally got it. It's Costa Rica. Um, but really, really appreciate what Mar Brother Marlin has uh, been doing for, here for us on, on Digital Bible Study. Uh, just a kind of a recent addition to the team here, but has just really stepped up and has become an integral part here. Uh, great job with the um, uh, with the um, uh, Spanish language meeting last week. Um, they had a couple of technical issues uh, late in the week. Um, and I know he went back Saturday. I think one of the lessons maybe on Friday night, there was a technical issue, if I'm not mistaken. And he actually went back and he um, <clears throat> he reposted a uh, that lesson as a uh, a pre-recorded video, and it is now in uh, the timeline of um, of uh, our um, Facebook feed and of course one of the videos over on our, uh, our YouTube channel as well. So if you missed that one Friday night, or if you have a somebody you think would like to benefit from it, that lesson in its entirety is now posted uh, for your um, for your use. So. Uh, I think that's pretty much all of the announcements uh, stuff uh, stuff we have getting started here. Uh, Christine says Eric is a popular name. Eric is a popular name around these parts, apparently. That is the official name of Digital Bible Study. If you want to come on, uh, just change your name to Eric, and we'll, we'll, we'll find a place for you on the schedule, apparently. That's the way it works. Uh, but let's see what we got here going on here in the uh, in the questions. Oh, I always forget to do this now. See? Let me put that up because I always forget to do it now. There we go. Um, what do we have here? We got Travis. Have you ever heard someone try to use Matthew nineteen nine to say fornication actually frees both parties from marriage and allows them to marry others with God's blessings? I have, I have. Um, it is it is referred to as the um, uh, the doctrine of of um well it's a shorthand form of it it's just really it's, it's, when somebody talks about the guilty party um that, that's usually what they're what they're talking about um i have heard of it is that all you want from it because i can i can say more but all you asked was have i heard about it and yes i've heard it would you like more <laughs> um this is this is Hold on, let me. I'm I'm pulling up my pulling up my Bible program here. Give me just a second. But the topic topic of the guilty party. Um, if I have one issue with um traditional views on marriage and divorce, or, or let me say it this way, because I don't want I don't want to make make it sound like I do have the issue. Um, if I were going to have an issue, or or the the Whatever it is, how, whatever the proper way of saying that, um, um, I would it would be here. 
it would be here because I think the the most compelling argument against the um, case of the, the traditional view of Matthew 19, I think the most compelling argument against the traditional case is made here. Um, not saying I agree with it by any means, uh, but I think the most compelling case is made here, right? And I've answered this question in kind of the generic um, a couple of times before, uh, but not directly on the on the question you asked there, Travis. Um, let me go ahead and go do, do the screen share up so y'all can see it because I want to talk talk you through this. Okay. Uh, let's see. There we go here. Um, I can't remember how I like this. Let's just do that. I guess that's about as good as I get. All right. The the verse obviously in Matthew nineteen nine is pretty simple, and we've say that say that several times. The language of Matthew nineteen is very very simple um, language. Whoever divorces his wife, except for, for uh, sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay. Um, the argument here, of course, is um. Oh, the ESV, the ESV drops the, the I knew that was looking weird. In the ES, there is a, a, a slight textual variant there. Um, and the ESV drops the uh, the second half of the of the verse. So last part of the verse, rather. So let me go ahead and get the King James here so we can read it in its entirety. Um, and I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And then here's the phrase the ESV leaves out, because there get, there is, again, a textual variant there. Whoso marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. Okay. And that would be the phrase that, that, that people use to uh, say that the woman who is put away or the spouse that is put away um, is forbidden from, from remarrying. All right. Um, the issue or, or the argument, the argument against this being a prohibition generally for all parties. Or, or for the for the guilty party in remarrying, um, is is largely founded at least at least the the, the the when I've heard this argument argued well, uh, it's it's based upon that word. Now, there is a a an occurrence of an illustration um, that. Some people refer to as the, the handcuff illustration or the handcuffed argument that marriage cuffs the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. And you can't release one set of one half of the handcuff without also releasing the other half of the handcuff. Okay. Um, but that's not actually an argument. That's, that's, that's an illustration, and the illustration is only as good as the text from which it's drawn. Um, and so a lot of people will use arguments like that to talk about, uh, this topic or in trying to answer this position, they'll try to, they'll come up with ways of answering the illustration. I don't spend a lot of time talking about the handcuff illustration or argument, whatever you want to call it, because it's not textual. Okay. Uh, uh the, you can, you can, you can craft that illustration either way you want to craft it. And, and still have legitimacy in terms of the, the power of the illustration, but you haven't done anything to answer the actual words of the text and the basis. You know, it's the text which determines which viewpoint on the handcuffed illustration is the correct one. 
Uh, and so until you actually deal with the text, then I don't, I don't see any particular power in either putting forth the handcuff illustration or answering it because it's the text that matters. And so um, the, um, the term here, adultery, when, when this argument is made, made well, uh, the term here, adultery, is the critical phrase, okay? Um, it's, it's, it says um, the person who marries this individual does commit adultery, all right? Now, further, uh, this, goes, this gets off the topic here, uh, Travis, but um, the word adultery has not changed meanings here, right? There are some people who in order to, um, sometimes people will really start to quibble uh, about about phraseology here um, and suggest that, uh, well, what if these individuals got married but they never had sex? Okay, I think you're straining at an at and swallowing the camel kind of mentality here. The word, word adultery does not mean marriage. The word adultery means sex. And you cannot have sex with somebody unless you unless you uh, or you can't commit adultery with somebody unless you have sex with them. It is it is impossible. Uh, anybody who attempts to redefine this word to mean anything other than having sexual intercourse with somebody, I just reject your arguments out of hand. Okay, that's not what the word means. The word means sex. Jesus here is not talking about uh, you know two people who are incapable of having sex getting getting married together. Okay, I know that from his the, the next conversation that comes afterwards, where they immediately began talking about becoming a eunuch. Well, what's the connection here between committing adultery and some people having to become a eunuch? It means you can't have sex. That's the connection. This word means having sex. Okay, uh, it doesn't mean married. Now, that does not also does not mean that simply because, uh, let's say it's Two elderly people who, who's, who's as as the, as the uh, he, is it Hebrews writer or is it Romans? Hebrews writer talks about Abraham's body being dead. Okay, where's that Romans? Either Romans four or Hebrews eleven. Y'all can find it. Um, you know, let's say they're they're in that state. The body is quote unquote dead in that condition. Okay, that doesn't mean it's not. That does not mean it's not sinful to use two negatives there together. It does not mean that it's not sinful or that it's okay, simply because I don't have sex with the person, that it's okay to marry this person. That's not what that means. But this word means sex. Don't change the definition of a word to make an argument. It is okay if Matthew 19.9 does not cover every single uh, possible outcome. It's okay. The world's not going to an end if, if we just let the words mean what they mean. You can still make an argument that these people are not allowed to remarry. Okay? You just don't use Matthew 19.9 in the way that you're trying to use it. So that that that's my one or one of my non-negotiables. If somebody tries to redefi redefine the term adultery or redefine the term fornication, I've got I've got serious issues with you. Okay. Um let me so let me move forward. Okay. When people argue well for the remarriage of the guilty party. They make an argument between the definition of the term fornication and a def the definition in the term adultery, right? The term fornication is the Greek word porneia, which at the first, if you transliterate the letters, the first four letters are P-O-R-N, porn. 
in it then. And obviously when you attach the word graphos onto the end of it, which is the word for writing, it's the same word that's used to describe the scriptures, the graphos, the graphe, um, you have pornography. Okay. And so that's what you have. You have pornography. And so that's illicit writings. Now, obviously we have adapted that term because obviously we have a lot more now than just writings. Uh, we have all, whatever you want, we have it. Okay, so we have adapted the term. But all it meant was illicit sexual activity. So it had nothing to do with marriage. It had nothing to do, it would, it would include all forms of sexual deviancy. And I'll stop there without going through the list. Okay, it, has all, all, it covers all forms of them. Adultery is, a, is one of the forms of illicit sexual activity that would be covered under the term fornication, all right? Under the term fornication. Um, what is the distinct, distinctive characteristic of the married individual? Well, the distinctive characteristic of that would be that at least one person in the relationship is married. That is the distinctive characteristic of the relationship. Okay. Um, now, those who would argue for the remarriage of the guilty party would say this. If you go back here to the, the phrase, the King James put who, shortens it to whoso, we might, we might more naturally say whosoever. Mary's the one who has been put away, okay, um, does commit adultery. So since the first person is a whosoever, the argument goes that that individual could be a single person. And since that individual could be a single person, um, that individual cannot be the one that is of necessity married in the relationship. So since the, the sin that is being committed is the sin of adultery, we know by definition at least one person in the relationship must be married. Right? That's the basis of this argument is that if the, the distinction between fornication and adultery is that adultery requires at least one person in the sexual relationship to be married to another person. Who is that person? Who, that The person, rather, the person that must be married is the person that was put away. All right? So now this is where people turn to the, people start to answer or not answer the handcuff argument. Because let's examine the two cases, okay? Make it, let's examine the two cases that are that that can exist in the front from the first half of Matthew nineteen nine. The first case is when this acceptive clause is not honored. So let's just let's just remove the acceptive clause, except a phrase here, for for a moment while we read the verse. Without that, which, by the way, I believe, is it, is it Mark 10 or is it Luke 16? One of those two leaves out this phrase. It says this. I think it's Mark 16. Luke, Luke 16, 8. I think it's Luke 16's account that leaves it out. Um, Whosoever 
shall put away his wife. And let's just skip this phrase for a moment. For, for this case, that we're going to say this test fails. The acceptive clause here fails. So just read the verse then without it, because we're outside of that case. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away does commit adultery. Okay, that's simple. Because if you put away your wife and without the acceptive condition there, if that, if that, if, if that conditional, uh, uh, that variable fails, then you've done it without that being true. So that's now a false statement. So remove it from the verse and you've just described your condition. You put your spouse away and you marry somebody else, you commit adultery. Now, you marry another, the another could be, you know, a 18 year old, never, 18 year old, never been with anybody, never, never having been married before person. All right. Um, so that the, 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 the sin is not on this person's part. This, the sin's on your part because you have put your spouse away and now you're marrying somebody else. So that's clear. The person who's married in that situation is you. You already have a wife or a husband. You're the problem, not the other person. You are. And so when you marry that person, the natural outflow of that is you're going to have sex with them at some point. And when you do, you are having sex, or I guess technically your second spouse is having sex with somebody else's spouse. And you as somebody else's spouse are having sex with somebody who is not your spouse. Adultery is being committed. Now, because you are in that marital bond, it's easy here. It's easy here. Because whoso marries her, which is put away. Now, why has the person, as we just read this verse, since we're striking the acceptive phrase from, 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 the, from the condition here, this person in, in, in Matthew 19, 9b, why has that person been put away? Well, that person has been put away for any cause other than fornication. And so are they still, do they still have a spouse? Just as the, 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 the let's, let's say it's a husband, the, the, oh yeah, whosoever put his, puts away his wife. So the husband puts away his wife for any cause he wants to. When he marries somebody else and, and then consummates that marriage, he's having, he's committing adultery because he's still married to his wife. So whoever marries her, the wife that was put away, she's still married to another person. So th there's adultery being committed, right? The argument becomes then this, if we flip the case and say this, whosoever shall put away his wife for fornication and marries another, does not commit adultery. Why not? Well, traditionally, the way we have answered that is, is because that person has been released for the, from the marital bond. When you commit adultery, or when your spouse commits fornication, okay, and that's any kind of sexual deviancy, it does, it, you could divorce your wife not just because she has sex with another man, which would be the traditional view of adultery, but for all forms of sexual deviancy. Okay? The reason you're able to remarry is because you're no longer married. That's the way we have traditionally argued it. 
Well, then people who, who, who believe the guilty party can remarry came along and said, now, wait a minute. If that's true, does the acceptive phrase from the first half of the verse carry down into the second half of the verse? Because if the acceptive condition in the first half of the verse changes the outcome here, would it not also change the outcome here? They answer that it would. And the reason they answer that it would is because they say, look at the sin that's being committed. The sin is adultery. If it's adultery, and the whosoever can either be a, a married or non-married individual, the only person that could definitively be married in this coupling would be the her which is put away. In order to commit adultery, she must be married. And if that's the case, then the question comes, to whom is she married? And that's where the handcuff illustration comes in. Because then they say, well, if you have freed the first person from the marital bond, how have you not freed the second person from the marital bond? So, Travis, that's the argument, okay? Um, and when it's well-argued, it is a fairly well-argued position. Now, how do you answer it? Um, for a technical response to it, you're going to have to search to find this. They may still have a back copy of it. You may be able to find the article online somewhere. I, I, I had slash have a copy of it in, in my folder on marriage and divorce, which I don't know if I kept when I left Texas or not. And if I did, it's in a storage cabinet somewhere and I have no idea where it is. Um, but, um, um, there is a spiritual sword edition on marriage. I want to say it was like, it was in the fall. It was like October or September. Either in like 1975 or 1977. I don't know why those two dates stick in my brain. I want to say it was like September, October, 75 or 77. So it's old. Um, and I believe it was Roy Deaver uh, who wrote a very uh, well-written, um, was it Deaver or Jackson? I think it was Deaver. 77, it's probably Deaver. Um, very good um, uh, uh, technical, he's got better Greek skills than our, he had better Greek skills than I do. So I'm not even going to attempt to go down that path. Talking about, the, the modification of the second half of the verse and the and the the application of the acceptive the acceptive phrase here acceptive that if that's technically a phrase or a clause but the acceptive clause here in the first half of the verse cannot modify he says the second half of the verse and and he's got some Greek technicalities for it there may be other people who have done that as well uh, Roy's article is the first one I've ever came across, and it's still the best one that I can remember. Uh, but like I said, it, 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 you might be able to do a Google search and find it online. I bet somebody has scanned that thing in or, or 
recreated it or you know it's possible that maybe even the spiritual sword people uh is that still spiritual sword still done by get the get well church in memphis i don't think it's changed i don't think it's changed hands um but um uh, alan hires is well that's another question is brother alan still editing the spiritual sword i haven't i haven't seen the spiritual sword in a while um but anyway it, it's it, it's it's worth trying to find it if you can if if i were still in my office and, and all of that where i would be able to pull it up for you here but go there there are some there's some technical greek arguments that that try to explain that as well uh let me tell you an arg- arguments that i don't like okay um again the primary one i don't like is some people try to get around this argument simply by redefining the terms adultery and fornication here i don't like that at all uh, that that is that is too cute and too convenient and so on okay i, I don't i don't like it at all um I actually like the argument better to answer this from passages like Romans 7 or 1 Corinthians 7 and the application over there. Because as I said a minute ago, we treat Matthew 19, 9 as if it is a universal passage which explains every possible scenario that can arise. And I don't think it is. I don't, th- I don't think it is at all. I, I, there is some connection back here to, to the question that is asked. And there is a presumption in the question and in the discussion. Obviously, just like with, with the terms sexuality and, and, you know, and so on. That these are, this is the standard case of marriage that we're dealing with here. Um, and so I, I, the, 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 some of the ways that I have seen people try to answer this question, I, I think because they are so set on making this the standard universal text, which has to apply into every situation, or not the universal text, that, that's bad language, making it the primary text to answer every marriage and divorce question. And, 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 and in order to, in my opinion, to, to sustain the primacy of this passage in dealing with every possible marriage and divorce situation, I think we've made arguments that stretch the definition, stretch the application of the verse um, into some ways that, that that don't need to be done. Okay, um, I think Romans seven probably answers this better. That so long as the husband lives, the wife is bound by the law of the husband, and so on. Okay, that doesn't say that you're necessarily still married to the individual, but it does allow for the possibility that the law of marriage still applies to you so long as the husband lives. And so, what then? What you have then is essentially a primus, a prime, a primal, a, a text of primacy there. That this, the whatever the law of marriage is, extends to you for as long as you're alive. Which then would, in this instance, would put Matthew 19 subordinate to that, perhaps. To me, that that that's a better argument to to answer the 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 guilty party argument than redefining adultery in Matthew 19:9. So I like Romans 7 as an answer better than anything out of Matthew 19:9. Now, I will tell you this, and some people will get on to me for this. Travis, I personally believe that after the death of the previous spouse, so you're put away for, for your own fornication, and there you sit, and your, your spouse is goes about their life, and then at some point in the future, your previous spouse dies. Okay? Um... Well, I'm clearly then, because that person's dead, 
I'm clearly not capable of committing adultery. And, and Mark 10 is critical here because it says the adultery that I commit is not just conceptual adultery, right? Now Mark 10 says it clearly that when you when you marry, having put your put your spouse away for wrong for wrong reasons, uh, where is it? Um, whosoever should put away his wife and marry another. Oh no, it's Mark 10 that leaves the acceptive phrase out. Okay. Uh, whosoever should put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. So I'm not just like doing it. This is again, you can't change the definition of the term. It's not like it's not conceptualized adultery. It's not a, it's some kind of ephemeral adultery. I, I am committing adultery against the other person. Well, if the other person's dead, I can't commit adultery against them. They're dead. They're dead. I can't commit adultery against them. And so I passed that test. And Romans seven says, as long as the spouse lives, I'm bound by the law of that of, of that of that the, the law of marriage, the law of the husband, the law of the spouse. But when that person dies, I'm freed from that law. Well, that's my position. I, I, that's my position. I, I, or at least, let me, let me say it this way. At least I don't know how to formulate an argument that is that honors the definition of the term adultery that has any connection to reality, in my opinion, once the spouse of the previous person dies. The only way that you can do that is to say that it's punitive. That it's punitive. That when you, when you by your sin, commit fornication, you have then not only committed sin, of which you need to repent and find forgiveness, but even after you find forgiveness, you have then intrinsically forfeited the right ever to be married again. I don't see that from Matthew 19.9. I certainly don't see it from Romans 7. So my position would be, and, and there are people who would stringently disagree with me on this one, and if you showed them this clip, I'd probably get in trouble, okay? I don't, I, I don't, I don't know who you need to show it to to get me in trouble, but there are people out there, if you show them this, this 30 minutes of answering, then I'd, I'd probably get in trouble. But, but that's my position on it, Travis. So uh, that's my best, best write-up on it, or best answer I've got for you on it, man. Um, uh oh Travis you are you are just a a bible geek man you say you say you have that article that i was referencing from uh in the spiritual sword uh in in front of you okay there you go Travis how about that there you go um do you happen to is it the, you happen to have the original date or how or, or where did you source it from because if because it, it's not like there's that many copies of a 50 year old edition of the spiritual sword floating around um so anyway, oh, there it is. Oh, sorry, you already had it in the, oh, I was wrong. Had the year right. I had the date wrong. It's January, uh, not not October. So January uh, 1975, number two of the uh, of the spiritual sword. So there you go. Appreciate that, Travis. And yes, you must be a Bible geek to have to have that in front of you. Um, let's see, anything else? So anyway, th th there's there's more we could say there, and you can you can go down the rabbit hole real deep on, on these topics. Um, Let's see what else we have in here though this morning, because that's y'all have already gotten me probably written up by somebody somewhere if they care enough to write write me up. Um, but uh, they don't. I, I've said a lot of crazy stuff in my life, and nobody's ever really written me up for anything. So apparently, I just I don't carry enough weight to do that. So <laughs> that's all right. I'm okay with my peace. Um, all right, what we have here? Melissa says, I "Heard a preacher say that people would go forward and confess sins years ago. He said that doesn't happen anymore." Question is how many times and for which sins should one confess sins to each other 
uh, James 5.16, unless it says I'm behaving myself. I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, that's nice, Melissa. Uh, to answer your question, um, you, you, got, you have a text right that, um, that, that, that's here in James chapter 5. My Bible program and I have an argument about how you abbreviate Bible, Bible book names. Uh, I think it should be one way, and they think it should be another. And since it's their program, they win, and I'm having to relearn how to abbreviate all of these names. Um, but over here in, in um, um, uh, James chapter 5, um, we have that, uh, that verse. There it is. Uh, hold on. 5.16. Um, Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. All right. Um, there is that concept of confess your faults one to another. So the, the, the concept of confession is, is um, um, a biblical one, right? Now, I do believe, I do believe that this is um, a, a common um, occurrence. Um, James 5.16 and a few other passages along the way, but primarily James 5.16 has been taken by some to suggest that confession and, and having a, a, a confessional type experience is a normative case of, of Christ, the Christian experience, okay? Uh, this has obviously been gone, uh, been, been done uh, very badly in Catholicism for generations, where you had to take your sins and confess them before the priests. Right, and that obviously puts the priest into a um, into a pretty uh, there's a dinosaur over my shoulder. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just noticing my my grandson left one of his dinosaur toys on my on my shelf over my shoulder. We, we, I guess we need to give him a name now since he's in the screen. Um, that's a that's a big dinosaur toy. Uh, he's got to have a name now. I, I, I don't know what variant of dinosaur that's supposed to be, but anyway, see, squirrel, something ran in front of me. Um, what was I saying? Um, um, what was I saying? Oh, uh, you have Catholic priest put, obviously puts the priest into a a very powerful um, a position in terms of um, uh, controlling people and obviously knowing about all the stuff and so on. And it it it, it clearly puts. A, a, a hierarchy of, of spiritual development and so on from, from one to another. There have been movements outside of Catholicism that uh, do very much the same thing. Uh, back in the inside churches of Christ, back in the what, 70s, I guess is when it started to originate, uh, the discipling movement, which um, you know sometimes the, the really took off with the, um, oh, is Trish out there this morning? Because I think it's Gainesville. Was it the Crossroads Church in Gainesville? I remember correctly. Um, I think the Crossroads Church in, in Gainesville is where it really took off um, and became known as the Crossroads Movement. Uh, but in discipling type movements, um, in discipling type movements, there is that same that same relationship. Um, you have a mentor uh, who is you know a, a been in been in, been in the faith longer than uh, you have. Um, and and so on. Um, 
And part of that mentoring process, that discipling movement, uh, 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 relationship as that person is trying to move you to, to learn more about God and, and all that stuff. Um, there is often a confessional aspect of that as well, where you are essentially confessing your faults up to your mentor. And anytime you do that, you are putting yourself in a submissive pose. Okay. I do not believe that is the thought of these verses at all. James 5 or any, any of the other verses on confession. Uh, James 5 says it very clearly that you are to confess your faults um, one to another um, and pray one for another. So this is not a, a one-way street. There is a, a commonality here that goes back and forth. I believe it is also the case here in the King James. Good thing we have the King, up, King James up here because the King James usually does a pretty good job. The difference between you and ye. Um, the and let me just double check that I'm right here. It is um, the difference between you and ye in the King James is in the King James. When you see the word ye, it's usually plural. It's the plural form of you. Uh, so what we're doing here is we are confessing faults and praying for one another and both individuals are experiencing experiencing a healing. So this is, again, a two-way street in which each party has been injured. Each party is in need of healing. Uh, see a question in there. Is there a difference between uh, your faults um, and, um, and your sins? Um, here, I, I, I don't think so. Um, um, you know, it... it uh, I don't not, not not in practical terms. No, uh, I mean, uh, I actually don't know off the top of my head here what Greek word that is in the um in in on James five. Give me a second, just look that up real quick. Um, it means to fall down. It's the the, the root word of it is pipto. So, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I no no it, it is it means the places where you fall down. Uh, so, yeah, sins, your sins or your trespasses. So I don't think there is here um, definitely. I mean, the, the base word for sin, like earlier, um, again, I don't know that. I think this is probably harmatia over here. So, yeah, the common word for sin, if you look a little bit earlier, I know I know that text is too small for you all to read. But the um, in, at the end of verse 15 over here, and if he has committed sins, uh, that is the Greek word for um, uh, the standard word for sin, which is harmatia. Uh, the root, the root fault of this word fall, or of this word fault, is to fall down, um, and so that that's the. It, I don't, I don't really see a difference there. Um, you know, I haven't done a comparative word study in, in those two two word, Greek words. Can't remember if I've ever done it, um, but so for for the sake of our discussions, I'm going to say no, um, because they're they're both points where you fall down. Maybe one is where you fall down, and one is where you have fallen down. Something of that nature, but but I, no, not in any, not in any significant manner. No, I don't think so. Um, but you are to confess your faults one to another that there is a healing. Now the question comes in: Is that confessing faults one to another independent of each other, or is that when we have injured each other? In other words, do I am I am I being being exhorted here 
to confess my, maybe I have a personal struggle. Maybe, maybe I have, maybe I have a personal struggle with, let's say lying. Okay. And you have a personal struggle with, with, I don't know we we'll pick one gambling. Okay. You, you've got a problem with gambling or, 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 or you know, greed or whatever. And I've got a problem with lying. Okay. So do I confess that to you and you confess yours to me so that we can keep each other accountable? Or is it when you're, let's go with greed more than gambling. So the, your greed has somehow cheated me out of something and you confess that you did it so that our relationship can be healed back to each other. Or maybe I have told a lie to you and injured you and I need to confess that to you so that our, we both can be healed together. Um, which which is the case there? Well, uh, I, I lean toward the second one based upon other, other passages. Uh, I don't know that you do harm by saying the other, so long as there is a a a commonality in the in the obligation. In other words, I am not confessing upward to a mentor or to a priest or something of that nature, because there is only one mediator between me and God. I don't need you. I need Jesus, and you don't need me. You need Jesus. He is the only person between you and God. That, that's what First Timothy two five says. There's no one higher than you, and no one that you need to that you need to console in. Uh, as some kind of spiritual obligation that that is completely out if you choose to if you choose to go to a mentor if you choose to have somebody that you can rely on and so on um um that that's your that's your prerogative you're free in christ to do as you, as you wish in those matters but too often concepts of priesthood concepts of discipling and mentorship too often that becomes if if not an outright requirement the peer, the, you know, the peer pressure approaches that of making it obligatory. You know, when these discipling movements would come into churches, that the, they would put it in there so so firmly and and focus on it so heavily that even if it's not technically obligatory, effectively it is ob- obligatory, and that is a violation of James sixteen entirely. Uh, that one I would throw out. But if you have a close friend, uh, a close brother or sister that you rely on, and, and you all openly discuss your faults and, and, and when you fall back and forth with each other, even if it's not impacting each other, that would certainly be included under James 5.16. As a rule, as a commandment, I tend to think James 5.16 is talking about when we have sinned against each other, that we need to confess that before each other so that uh, we that so that relationship can be healed. I would take that from passages like Matthew chapter 6, where you leave your gift before the altar because you know your brother has all before you. I would take that from Matthew 18, the concept of here is a brother who has, again, offended me, meaning that he hasn't, he hasn't hurt my feelings. He's sinned against me. And hurting your feelings is not the same as sinning against you. Okay, so if your brother has offended you, that means to sin against you, that you need to go and talk to your brother or your sister. And the concept there is you go to him alone. So you keep that quiet. That sin that's taking place between uh, between two individuals stays between those two individuals. It is not until one refuses to repent that Matthew 18 then says you bring other people involved. So my concept from Matthew 6 and Matthew 18 is that sin is dealt with on the smallest level possible because love covers a multitude of sins. We're not out here announcing sins. We are confessing them, okay, and that's different. So you deal with it on the, as small a scope as possible. It doesn't benefit anybody 
to come together on a Sunday morning and we start airing the whole the whole church's dirty laundry out in front of everybody. Um, you know, it, it's not really gonna gonna help if 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 somebody stands up and starts naming names. Uh, that, that's not really gonna help people, and that's it's not the best path to, to solving problems. Okay, the biblical principle, as I see it, is you you handle that in as small a skirt circle as is needed, as is possible. So if it's an individual sin against another individual, we handle it in private. The church as a whole never needs to find out about it. Let love cover the multitude of those sins. Do not air your dirty laundry in public. That's that's not biblical, okay? So we have here a one another confession. So the concept and the question goes back to um, the preacher saying that we used to people used to go down front a lot more than um, than they do now, right? Um, and I'd say that's probably the case in most circles, Melissa. Um, I have noticed a cultural racial difference um, in my preaching career. You know, I preached for ten years at Avondale, and that's a predominantly black church. And then I've preached, obviously, at predominantly white churches. And I can tell you which congregation consistently has more people coming down front asking for prayers, right? <laughs> uh, it's it's not close. It, it was not close. Um, uh, black churches or predominantly black churches tend to have a whole lot more people asking for prayers than white churches do. And I don't think there's anything wrong or, or that, 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 nothing needs to be fixed in either place, probably. I mean, it, it could be the case that something needs to be fixed, you know, uh, uh, I remember when, when we were, I was at Palm Beach Lakes and as a child, there was this, this brother in the church that at the end of every sermon, every sermon, every sermon, when he was there, he came forward. Every sermon. I'm like, dude, you, you really probably didn't do something last week that we need to say this prayer again. Uh, at, at some point, you got you to pull that brother aside and say, hey, listen, I don't think you understand what's going on here. You know, we need to, there needs to be some kind of, some kind of understanding about the, what that process is. But as I understand the process, and this is how I have always conceived of it, my conception of the process of somebody coming down front, or I've seen it done otherwise. Again, in, in predominantly black churches, I've seen the practice, you stand up for the, um, for the, um, um, stand up for the, the, the invitation song. And at the end of the invitation song, everybody sits down and the people that are remaining standing up uh, they'd go around and, and ask for prayers or make a confession if they needed, uh, uh, you know, ask, ask for prayers or, or make a confession if they needed to or so on. Uh, as a practice, I don't like that. Because, again, sometimes sins take place inside the church, and it's two people inside the church, and one of them wants to, quote-unquote, confess and what that confession sometimes, not that we would ever do this to each other, not we would never be passive aggressive and actually call that brother or sister out that they're having problems with by their quote unquote confession and asking for prayers. And effectively, then what they're doing is they're tattling on the person they're mad at. So, yeah, I, I you're, you're going to make the verbal statement or the written statement to me if I'm the preacher or, or the, if, if an elder, you're going to make it to me because we're not going to start calling down mess on the church because you've got an ax to grind with somebody. We're gonna, before before you take that before the church, we're gonna get that locked down to make sure we don't blow up the whole church right here on Sunday morning, because you've got an ax to grind. So 
yeah, we're going to do that written confession thing where the preacher or the elder gets up and tells the church what you're saying. We're going to do that. We're going to do it that way every single time where I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've seen that go sideways real quick. Um, but um, uh, my concept of what we're doing there is that somebody has committed a sin, which either does or potentially does damage the entire body. So you, you have been out and you, you, you've cheated on your spouse and everybody knows about it or they're going to know about it. Uh, you were out, got, got arrested for drunk driving. Either they know about it or they're going to know about it. They, they need, the whole church needs to be able to say when they're questioned later on by community members or family members, whatever, the whole church needs to be able to say, yeah, uh, he came forward, he repented of it, and, and so on. We're, we're working with them on it. So that's my concept of what we're doing is we're doing James 5.16, but instead of having to go around and, can, you know, let's, let's say I, let's say I get, get, get arrested for drunk driving, okay, and there's 300 men, people in my church. Do I have to go around and confess? Because that, that's going to hurt all 300 of them. That's going to impact the church. It's going to hurt the reputation of the church, the church and so on, all 300 of them. Do I have to go around and make 300 phone calls? I mean, that could take months. To, to, to go have all of those conversations, that could take months. And before I get it done, the damage might already be done. Um, so we handle that differently. We handle that with a group confession of, 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 of the problem. So that, that's how we handle it. Okay. Uh, so that's what I see as the, uh, as the base point of that. So uh, should it be happening more? Probably Christine or, or probably was Deborah, right? It was Deborah that asked the question. Probably Deborah. There's probably more 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 public sins out there than that we um, that we know about, but um, 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 yeah. So anyway, um, let's see what else we have here because um, y'all have been having conversations that I haven't. I got eight, three minutes. Let's see if I go back here. Um, let's see where we are. Let's just start going through them. Uh, people make Matthew 19 more difficult than what it states. Yeah, and then sometimes. And sometimes it gets difficult just because we get ourselves in so much mess that it's hard to do the do the 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 the, the autopsy on the <laughs> on the uh, on the marriages to figure out who who am I actually married to at this point? That that can be challenging. Uh, Deborah says no, we can't divorce and wait for the other person to marry either. Uh, I've 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 heard people kind of have that you, you know you messed up first kind of mentality. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that's, that would be another example. I didn't use it, but that'd be another example of trying to stretch Matthew 19, 9 into a problem. Okay. Cause does Matthew 19, 9 cover that situation? No, not directly. Is that, is that sinful? Is what, is that what Deborah's describing there sinful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though I don't necessarily, even though I can't quite fit it into Matthew 19, 9, that, that violates any number of passages of scripture. Okay. Um, Deborah again says, um, most people I've heard that argue anyone can remarry use the Old Testament for their argument about what God meant uh, and what He allowed in the Old Testament, and that would be back to Deuteronomy 24, uh, where that where that passage is found. Um, and uh, there is some some um, uh, different language in Matthew Deuteronomy 24 than what we teach out of Matthew 19. Definitely, uh, divorce doesn't need to happen first. The marriage can can uh, be forgiven. Yeah, let me say that as well. Good point there, Johnny. Uh, just because your spouse has committed fornication does not mean you have to divorce them. You can forgive and continue the relationship. Um, now it gets a little trickier if if you do say I'm going to forgive them, and um, uh, and then later on you say I just can't I can't handle this isn't working I can't handle it. 
Uh, the question then becomes is, did you forfeit your right, your license to put them away for fornication because you tried to work it out first? That, that, that to me gets trickier. Um, uh, and maybe, maybe somebody could ask that question one morning because I don't have time to get into it right now, but, um, yeah, but the absolute Jonathan, Johnny, to your, to your point is it's, it's not, it is a license to take an action, not a commandment to take an action by any means. Um, keep scrolling down here. Let's see what we have. If I have anything else I need to, uh, to respond to, uh, false difference in sins. That's what we asked. Um, lots of questions or lots of comments in here. Um, uh, Deborah asked, um, the reason I ask is I have faults that, that they aren't necessarily sins. And that, that would, that would be true. I just, I, you know, I understand how you're using the phrase and, and you're just catching me flat footed. You know how something you know, I say in the, in the opening, I don't know is a good answer here for me is an, I don't know. I, I don't know the, 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 the definitional difference between sins and faults in James 5.15 and 5.16. I can look it up. I can do some research on it if you'd like me to. But yeah, I see how you're using faults versus sins. Like, you know, I may have a fault that I that 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 I struggle with honesty. Like let's just use that example earlier. The fact that I have that fault is not in and of itself sinful. It's only sinful that when I succumb to it and I actually tell a lie. Right. Uh, so I may very well tell somebody who's a close friend of mine or, or Julie or spouse or spouse or whatever. I may very tell them, hey, I really struggle with this. Could y'all, could you check me? Could you make sure I'm telling you the truth all the time? So I would be confessing a fault, but not necessarily con confessing a sin. So in that sense, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm understanding your, your usage of it, that, that, is, that is certainly a valid concept. What I'm saying is, and this is just me not knowing. I haven't, I can't remember the last time I looked up those two words. And if I've ever done it, I don't remember the difference. But I, the, the, the word sin here and the word fault here are different Greek words. And so they're translated differently. And I just don't know. I don't know because I haven't done the work on it. I don't know if that the distinction that you're drawing is the same distinction that is there in those two terms. So I'd have to I'd have to look it up and, and do some research on it to see if I if, if there is an answer that I could give you a more definitive answer on. But whether or not those two Greek terms express the concept you're expressing here is, is kind of irrelevant because the concept you're expressing, I, I believe, is a right one. You, you can have a fault that is not necessarily sinful until you succumb to the fault. And then that, that temptation, that, that, that failing from your fault becomes sinful, if I understand the concept. And that concept is, is I believe, 100% um, 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 a valid one, e even from a biblical standpoint. Um, <laughs> Deborah says, I have, I have a fault of leaving the dishes in the sink overnight, uh, but that, but it's, uh, it's not a sin that I did it. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I have a fault of leaving dishes in the sink for Julie to wash. In fact, I heard Julie washing dishes while we were, while we were teaching this class. Uh, but uh, maybe I need to get off the air. Maybe I've said too much now. I've said too much. Uh, hurry up. I've got two minutes past the hour. I'm trying to get through as many of these as I can. Uh, was Herod the Great the one who had John the Baptist beheaded? And it was his son the one who had dealings with Paul's arrest? Uh, you can go forward and ask for prayer without without saying what you want the prayer for. If it's a private sin, keep it private. I'm not sure if those two things go together. That seems like two separate comments. Um, um, Herod, um, when he passed, his kingdom was divided among, was it three or four sins? 
or four sons. I think it was four. Antipas, Agrippa, Philip, maybe it was three. Boy, you're really hurting my brain here, Connie. I, I'd, I'd have to look that up. I don't remember. Uh, but for the second half of that comment, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, go for it. You can always always ask for prayers, and you don't have to confess. You don't have to tell anybody what you need prayers for. Just, we, we do that sometimes here on Digital Bible Study. When we ask for prayer requests at night, sometimes, sometimes people say, I'm just having some struggles. Pray for me. Okay? God knows what they are. We don't need to know them unless you just want to tell us. But I wouldn't recommend doing that on an open Internet discussion. That would not be... I, I'm not going to put out a lot of personal information like that on a, on an internet stream. That just doesn't seem smart in the world we live on at the end of the day. Um, so what we have here, um, I think that's um, that's about it, I think. I'm, after, I'm four after the hour, so I think we are uh, just about there. Um, my chat just went away. What happened? The chat just completely disappeared on me. Um Log back in again. It's for some reason it just logged me out. I wonder if somebody is in there doing some. Okay, there it is. All right, got the stream back. Um, so I'm gonna stop right here. Thank you all for all the questions this morning in the comments. I hope we dealt with your stuff in a, um, a satisfactory manner. Uh, thank you, Travis, for putting me on the spot. I do appreciate that. I was kind of like, who did that to me last week? Was it Jonathan? Jonathan Exon on the uh, Daniel 70 week stuff. Hey. Y'all are, are helpful to me, <laughs> really helpful to me. I do appreciate you, though, and we'll take the break here and come back in just a couple of minutes, and we will continue uh, our study together, and we will be in First Peter in just a couple of minutes. So sit tight, and I will be right back momentarily. Thank you. 
Okay, everybody. Hold on just a second. Need to move my microphone around a little bit. Sorry, particularly on the audio stream. Moving the microphone is not a good thing when you're doing just audio because that's got to put some noise in it. Sorry about that, everybody. But welcome back to From the Deep End, second hour of the program, beginning now. Um, during the break, I had a thought, and I really don't want to do this because I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently. But uh, first of all, could y'all make sure the uh, somebody put a comment in? Uh, sometimes in the second hour, y'all don't comment nearly as much. And I had a um, a little hiccup. I got logged out of Restream for some reason right at the end of the first hour, and I'm not certain if the comment feed is still working. So if y'all are commenting, I won't see it. If that happened, remember this happened to us a couple of days ago? I think what's happening is we have multiple team members who are using Restream, Tony and me and Marlon and Eric and so on. We're all using it. Um, and... I think when other people log in while I'm live to set up their streams or to do things, I think it logs me out. So I, I think that's what's happening. Um, and if it is, we need to find a way of addressing that. That would be a, anyway, but uh, I'm still not seeing it. If y'all are commenting, I'm not seeing it. There's no way for me to know if you've commented or not, if I'm not seeing the comments. <laughs> I guess I can load up the Facebook stream independent and just check. Uh, in fact, let me go ahead and do that before we get too deep into this. Give me just a second here to load up. Facebook on my own on my own browser here and I can see your latest comments. I say that and then Facebook Facebook is really slow to be such a huge website. It is really, really slow. Yep. Hey, second hour. Yep. Nope, I'm not getting them. Hold hold on everybody. I'm gonna have to step out of the room and come right back in and see if that doesn't fix the uh, like I did the other day. So sit tight. I'll be right back. Give me probably 30 seconds or so. Uh, and I'll be right back here in the room. Give me just a second. All right. So talk to me again. Let me see if you're there because this is something has gone really funky here. It is not um, it is not giving me any of y'all's uh, comments at all. So hopefully y'all can still hear me and see me. 
Let me go over and double check the, the Facebook stream again. Just give me another second here. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Travis, there y'all are. I should have known Travis would be in there causing trouble. Who won the national championship last year? Um, well, um, who did win the national championship last year? I'm trying to think who won it in basketball so I can answer snarky, but I can't remember who won the NCAA. Oh, that would be this year, wouldn't it? Oh, well, yeah, technically, technically, last year in 2021, Alabama won it. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yes, Georgia beat Alabama. Thank you, Travis. Anyway, we, we spent enough time here. But no, 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 no. I need to finish that out. Um, remind, remind me um, tomorrow morning. Uh, I want to go back and revisit a little bit. I, I try to keep myself out of trouble. But I do want to go back and revisit... Um, at least briefly, Matthew 19, 9 again, and the guilty party. Because um, I, I passingly made a statement about the, um, the textual variant between the ESV and the King James. Um, and to me, that is not an insignificant development. Okay. Um, and I want to at least uh, touch on that again tomorrow morning. Uh, it's probably, if y'all spread this around, probably going to get me in trouble because uh, I want to, because of what I think is the consequence of that variant. Uh, and it's not, it's not insignificant. And if you could prove to me the variant was a valid one, in other words, that the shorter version of Matthew 19, 9 were valid, uh, it, it might impact what I believe about marriage and divorce. And I at least, I at least want to address it and how you deal with it, okay? Um, if I can do it in a way that doesn't get me again written up by whoever would want to write me up for that kind of stuff. So anyway, so if, if, if y'all are there in the morning, remind me to do that. And I, I don't I don't want to do it, but I feel like I need to because it's it, it's an important issue, okay? So having said all that, let's we are well past the top of the hour and we're gonna need to hurry to get some ground covered in First Peter. Uh, but I appreciate your patience with my announcements and my technical issues. Um, get the screen share turned back on. There we are. So we are in First Peter chapter one. Um, and we basically just finished up that first uh, paragraph or first section, all the way down through about verse number twelve. And what I had tried, what I tried to emphasize to you through the first twelve verses of First Peter one was the um, connection between those 12 verses and what Peter says at the end of the book, where he says, I've written briefly that you may know that you stand, uh, that, that well, that you are in the true grace of God. And then his, his command from that is to stand firm in that grace. Okay. In fact, let's go ahead and just read it so I don't butcher the verse in front of you. Um, I think I've said this in the past when we've been studying other other passages. I said, I said 11, didn't I? It's not 11, it's 12. Um, I, I've said this in other, other, other places, other times in our studies, I think, but when you can find these kind of statements in the Bible or in a book, uh, a Bible book, man, man, pay attention to, pay attention to those kind of statements. When a Bible writer tells you, this is what I'm writing about, make sure that you interpret everything else in that book in a way that complements what he just said. Okay. And so 
he says, I have written for you briefly to you, declaring that this, what I have delivered to you, is the true grace of God. And we, we asked and tried to answer the question over the last several sessions, okay, if what Peter is saying is the true grace of God, of course, then what is the false grace of God? So you, you got to have the par- comparison contrast. And of course, I, I tied that back to, to Judaism and, and to all of the things connected there, right? Okay. His command coming out of it is to stand firm in it, right? So what I would like to suggest to you is that verses 1 to 12 is effectively Peter's prologue to the book. Uh, you know how people go to the Gospel of John in the first, what, 17 verses of, of John that say is, is that, you know, it's the prologue or the preamble to the Gospel of John. It's laying out everything that John is going to try to prove through the rest of the book in those first 17 verses. And then very similarly, you get to the end of John and he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing, you might have life through his name. So he starts with a masterful, almost like the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit inspired it type masterful defense of the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus in those first 17 verses and of the purpose of his work of coming to the Jews and so on. He then gets to the end of the book and he tells you, now I've written these things that you might believe that what I said at the front was true. There's a very similar structure here, in my opinion, going on in 1 Peter. Those first 12 verses of 1 Peter 1 define for you the true grace of God. And we've covered that. I'll try not to belabor this too much because we've already covered it in the last several sessions. According according to his foreknowledge, you are the elect. It it has the confirmatory gifts of the sanctification of the Spirit. Uh, It it is according to the the work of the prophets that they desired to look into it. Uh, The angels desired, they, they inquired about it. The angels uh, um, uh, proclaimed it or desired to look into it as well. Uh, they didn't proclaim it. They desired to look into it. So anyway, you've got, you have 12 verses affirming that what Peter is telling the, the elect exiles of the dispersion, what he is telling them is exactly what God predicted, prophesied, promised would happen. Nothing's gone wrong. Even though you're in grievous trials, everything is working according to God's plan. This is despite all of the troubles, all of the persecutions, all the trials that we're going to read about throughout the next four chapters of Peter's book, despite all of that, or in spite that, I I can't remember the difference between despite and in spite that I've never figured that out. Somebody maybe correct me there in the comments. I've got an English teacher in 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 the room, but in spite or despite, whichever one's right, of all of the things Peter's going to write about in the book, it's still the true grace of God. Now, what's the command? The command in 1 Peter 5.12 is stand firm. That's effectively the final command. I guess you could technically call 14, greet one another with with a kiss of love, a command. But the final command, really, of 1 Peter is to stand firm in the grace of God, right? In the true grace of God. I've written briefly, declaring, exhorting, and declaring that you, you've made the right choice. Stand, this is the true grace of God. What should, you do, what should you do in response to that? 
when you understand that you've made the right choice, don't give up. Stand firm. Okay. I want you to see the 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 um, excuse me the um, uh, parallel structure here in First Peter one. All right, same idea. We just talked about it. This has all been done according to His great mercy. Living hope, your inheritance is reserved in heaven. Your faith is genuine. It's more precious than than gold. Um, it's going to result in praise and glory and honor. All of that stuff. All the stuff we spent time talking about. This salvation, not just salvation, but this salvation, the prophets prophesied about, they told you it was coming, and so on, all right? What's the first command? In other words, verses 1 through 12, this is the true grace of God, okay? What's the first command? Prepare your mind for action. Well, that sounds a whole lot like stand firm. See, when you find those purpose statements in a book, it's amazing how the rest of the book goes right along with the purpose statement. Here's the true grace of God, verses 1 to 12. 13, stand firm. How are you going to stand firm? You're going to stand firm by getting your mind prepared for action. I love the King James rendering here. Do I have to, can I pull that up real fast for you? I love the King James rendering. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I am told from the study that I have done that based upon the garments that they wore um, in, um, in, in that age, uh, even the men, of course, would wear have a, a what we would consider more like a robe type garment. And while they were lounging around, the robe would be hanging loose. But if they were about to engage in work, or if they were about to go on a walk, or certainly a run, or something of that nature, if they were about to get active, the first thing they would do as they started to to get prepared to go into action is they would take that robe and they would bind it up. So it would uncover the, the legs so the legs could move freely and so on. They would bind that up around their waist. So gird up the loins here of your mind. So in other words, get your mind engaged. Get your mind ready to, 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 to understand what's going on around you, participate in it uh, as need be, uh, embrace it, fight against it, whatever's needed. Get your mind ready because what's coming is going to challenge. It's going to challenge your mind. It's going to challenge your faith. It's going to challenge everything. Okay. So the ESV renders that with less um, um, cultural flair, shall we say, and just says it more directly to an English speaking audience where it says, prepare your mind for action. So gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your mind for action. Um. See, Travis is always there to cause me trouble and to help me. According to Grammarly, the easy answer is none. Des despite and in spite, despite what you may have heard, work ident identically in a sentence. There you go. That works for me. Okay, never mind. Uh, back, back to the topic. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. All right, here's what we need to do. Be sober-minded. Set your full, full hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? Two things. Be sober-minded. So be realistic about what's going on. Right? Don't, don't be drunken on false hope. Don't be flippant. Don't, uh, on the other side, don't be in despair. Have your mind properly, um, I think the King James uses the same word, doesn't I just had it up, so let me go back to it. Yeah, be sober, okay? Be sober-minded. Consider it. Realistic. All of those things that come out of the concept of sobriety. Okay, and I don't think this means literally that this is, I mean, it may very well be, but it's, it, it's, I don't think the point here is a, a, a denunciation of alcohol. I don't think, I think this is a metaphor to be sober or to be sober minded. Okay. People that are drunken are, are not exactly the most realistic people in the world, right? They don't necessarily view the world properly. You know, uh, sometimes you get around somebody who's had a few too many and they're, they're overly optimistic or sometimes they're overly pessimistic. You know, a happy drunk or a sad drunk, I think people call them. You can, get, you can get both of those. But it is the sober person who can actually see reality for what it is. So understand what's going on around you. This book in First Peter is not in any way trying to paint a rosy picture of the days ahead for these Christians. He's, he's going to tell them very clearly throughout this book. There's, there's trouble in front of you. All right, realize, realize it for what it is. Now, don't forget that what you've made the right choice, and that's the second part of this phrase. But also don't think that because you've made the right choice, your life is going to get better. Just as an, as an aside and, and, and to get a little bit, you know, uh, in terms of application or maybe sermonic here, I think that's one of the um, great missteps we make in teaching people the gospel. We tell people that if you'll, Excuse me. Maybe not in these words, but effectively we tell them, if you'll put if you you'll um, uh, put Jesus Christ on in baptism, if you'll become a Christian, if you'll give your life over to Jesus. Man, the gospel, Christianity, it's the greatest way of life. It's the greatest life you could live. It'll help your home. It, it, it'll help you. It, it, it'll help you making decisions. It, it, it'll help you, to, you know, to, to do everything exactly, you know, the right way. Right? You'll be start. You'll start living the right way in all these different matters. And we leave the impression that, um, boy, if you'll just become a Christian, your life will get better. And you know, in in, in a broad sense, and over obviously over the course of a lifetime, that's true. That is true. I'm not going to argue with that at all. Um, is it, was it, uh, somebody help me out here. Is it Proverbs, um, I won't say it's 14, 14, 34, maybe somebody check me on this. Uh, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. Okay. You know, I think sometimes we read that verse that God exalts the righteous uh, nation and God brings reproach upon sinful nations. So a uh, sinful people. Well, that again, that's a truth statement that God does exalt righteous people and righteous nations, and God does bring judgment upon those who sin eventually. But that's not what the verse says. That is not what the verse says. The verse does not say God does anything. The verse says that righteousness exalts a nation. Now, you can be righteous without being godly. 
Okay, godly doesn't necessarily mean holy and pure the way that we mean it. Godly usually just means devoted to God. But somebody can be righteous without being devoted to God. I have met uh, atheists or agnostics in my life that were some of the most righteous people that you'll ever come across. They did right for whatever reason. We We may doubt the legitimacy of the choices that they make, but they would tell the truth. They would show kindness to their neighbors. Uh, they, they would, you know, treat their spouse and their family well, and, and and so on. They would do a whole bunch of righteous actions, like Cornelius in in, in Acts ten and eleven. <laughs> before before Cornelius became a Christian, he was a righteous man. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed. He was devoted to God. He was, you know, all those things. But he wasn't Christian. He was lost. He was righteous, but not a Christian. Okay, righteousness exalts a nation. If any nation will start doing right things, if it will punish lawbreakers, if it will uh, uh, reward those who do good and, and promote righteous ideals, God doesn't need to bless that nation. Righteousness has within it its own blessings. So whether you're a Christian or not, if you always tell the truth, that's a good thing. And it will benefit you over the long haul. That's a good thing. There's nothing mystical here. It's not. It's not that that if if you tell the truth all the time, that God is going to reach down and like you like you do with a puppy and give the puppy a treat for having done good things, right? That that that's that's not the concept. The concept is the the fruit, the reward of righteousness is wrapped up. It's inherent within righteousness. God doesn't have to bless a truth teller because telling the truth over the long haul is better than being a liar. Okay? So when we tell people, hey, just turn to God, make your life better, that's true because it's it has its own blessings and, and, and wrapped up in it. True. Not always true. Sometimes, sometimes, naming the name of Christ makes your life worse particularly in the short term. You may lose your home. You may lose your job. You could lose your family. You could lose your friends. Any number of really bad things could happen to you because you made the choice to put Jesus Christ on. Any number of bad, sometimes, you're going to disrupt your life for quite a while before you actually see the benefit on the back end. And I think sometimes we don't do a real good selling. You know, Jesus tells us very clearly, if you don't count the cost, you cannot be my disciple. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back. We sometimes, I, just my opinion, here I am still being sermonic before we get back to the text here in First Peter 1. I believe, personally, we are so often in a rush, such a rush to get people baptized that we fail to help them count the cost before they are immersed. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I've never been, in terms of volume, I've never been a great personal worker. It takes me a long time, usually. And sometimes, I'll, you know, you walk into a study and you think, okay, I've got one chance with this person. And that that's a different study. When, you, when, you, when you've got the feeling that they showed up once, I'm not sure they're coming back a second time. We need to get to the point. Okay, that's a different study. But when I'm studying with somebody who is actually engaged, and I, and I believe this person is going to end up 
obeying the gospel, I don't study fast. It will take me weeks, sometimes months to study with somebody. Because I want them to count the cost. I want them to know what exactly it is that they're doing before they make the choice. It's only fair. You need to know the choice that you're making. Now, if you if they stop me at some point and say, what does, what does hinder me from being baptized? We're going to go baptize that person, right? But you're going to spend some time thinking about this before you make the choice. You need to be sober about it. Now, back to First Peter. Let me get off the sermon and get back to First Peter. I believe that's why we start here. In order to prepare your minds for action, you have to be realistic about the situation. Just because you're right, just because this is the true grace of God, and you have chosen this, this salvation that is validated by the prophet's prophecy, that is um, um, validated by the, the Holy Spirit's presence in, presence in the, the um, uh, revelation of it, that is further so, so uh, fascinating that angels desire to understand what God is doing. Just because all of that is true doesn't mean this is about to be a walk in the park for you. You need to be sober-minded, realistic about the world that is around you. And the world that is around you, as we have talked about in the, in the previous lessons, is a world that is entering into the, the, the depths of the Great Tribulation. It is about to be overwhelmed. And it's actually in the process of being overwhelmed, as you read chapters 4 and 5, by the pains and the fires of this tribulation. You need to be realistic, okay? Fire is about to fall down on the world, figuratively speaking at least. And the fact that you're a Christian, the fact that you're holy, the fact that you're right won't matter. If, you, if, if, you, if you're living in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina comes, you can be right about as many things as you want to be right about. Your house is still going to get flooded, okay? Be sober. Be realistic about what is in front of you. Now, how do you go through that? Um, um, how do you go through that process? Because sometimes being sober-minded and being real about the world that's around you that can be depressing. This is going to stink, and the human result, the human impulse, is when we're about to enter into a period of time of great trouble. Don't we seek to minimize that trouble? Yeah. Yeah, we seek to minimize that trouble. And frankly, Peter is going to give them some, some advice later in the book about how to minimize the trouble. Make sure you suffer as a Christian. All right, follow the example of Jesus. So he's going to give them some advice about um, how, how to avoid the, sorry, I'm about to sneeze. I, that, that always happens. Uh, that, that don't, don't, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that I said it out loud, it's not going to happen, is it? Take a drink of water here. Maybe that'll... Do something one way or the other. Nope, nope, nothing's happening. All right. It'll sneak up on me here in about 90 seconds probably. Um, but sometimes we try to minimize the, da the damage, and Peter's going to give us some advice about how to do that. But what is the actual way of getting through this? The actual way to get through this is to do this, to set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Once again, before we deal with that, that last half of the verse, we have two concepts here in, in, this, in this admonition, in this encouragement, command actually. 
set your hope fully, right? Remember what he has just told them earlier in the book. When you were born again, you were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on, again, the truth. So what you have here is grace that will be brought to you, okay? Set your hope fully on it. Notice the connection again. The grace that is coming. Now, what does Peter call what he has told them? Chapter 5, verse 12. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. All right? Here it is. You need to believe that the grace that is coming to you is true. It, it is actual. What has been promised to you is actually coming to you. That's what you need to believe. And in order to believe that, again, be realistic about your settings and hope, and I love that word fully right there, hope fully, nothing doubting. You know, James 1, don't be that double-minded man. Hope fully on the grace that is going to come to you. In order to hope fully on the grace that is coming, guess what you have to believe? You have to believe that everything you just read in those first 12 verses is right, that this is according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, as we say a little bit later on in this text, where, where's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, um, the, the Holy Spirit predicted the sufferings and the subsequent glories. You have That's what verse number 11, you have to believe all of that. This is true and right and so on. So your mind is going to be prepared for action if you can do two things. If you can stay grounded in reality and know that your circumstances do not validate or invalidate your faith. Your faith is not based upon your feelings. Your faith is not based upon your circumstances. It is not based upon perception. It is based upon revelation. So do not forget, he'll say in 2 Peter chapter 3, you need to remember you need to remember the, the, uh, the, the predictions of the Lord and of the apostles and so on, that in the last days, these scoffers will come. So we've, we've referenced that in the past uh, uh, as we've looked at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. Don't forget that passage over there in 2 Peter as well because it's the same thought, okay? Prepare your mind, get it set right into the, mind, into the mentality and understand then because you are grounded in reality because you're sober-minded about the events around you, your hope is not in any way injured. It's not in any way hurt because you have unrealistic expectations. It's like two young people getting married and they think, oh man, when we get married, uh, it's going to be, you know, we're, it's, I'm going to be like you know, Cinderella in the castle and my prince is going to be with me and everything's going to be wonderful and great. Uh, and no, no, it doesn't turn out that way. You end up living in government housing and, and some project somewhere and eating government cheese. Okay. The problem is that it's it's not that those circumstances are going to invalidate the choice that you that you had in getting married to each other. The fact that one person's rich and one person's poor doesn't mean they made the right or wrong choice about who they married. And it might that that could also be true, but it doesn't mean that. The, the problem we have is that we had unrealistic expectations. I introduce new and so on. We do that to us. We do that. We do that to ourselves all the time. Okay. Be realistic about what you're seeing around you, and part of being realistic again is to remember remember the uh, the proper the prophecies and predictions that were around you. And so, what you need to do then is to set your hope properly, because you know that the grace that is going to come to you is going to be worth it all. So, as he said up here in the um, 
uh, opening portion of the of the um, uh, of the text. We are we are uh, um, a God's power is guarding the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, uh, and it will be result our faith, the genuine faith that we have, will result praise and glory and honor again at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the same thing is said down here. Then in verse number um, ver- verse number thirteen, the grace that will be brought to you again at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now. I took the position uh, a couple of days ago, whenever it was we were studying a couple of lessons ago, it was more than a couple of days, but um, <laughs> Travis said, I'm just saying government cheese in those long cardboard boxes was delicious. Uh, we, we had some of those, Travis, we did. And I, I, I remember as a kid, I ate it up just fine. I, I did not have any problem eating it at all, man. Um, but, uh, but I took the position as we were studying through those earlier verses that the revelation of Jesus Christ that is being spoken of here is probably uh the revelation in, in, that he has in judgment uh, on the nation of Israel in, in, in and around AD 70. Okay, that's the position I took, and I think that's the case here. Whatever you take, whatever you make of this revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7, um, I think it almost has to be the same one here in verse number 13. I, I don't know how you could separate those two things apart from one another so close together within uh, a, a context with such great continuity between, in it. I saw a Whatever it is in seven, I believe it's the same thing in verse 13. I don't see any reason to have any different view about the matter. Uh, most commentators, particularly those inside churches of Christ who, who, write, or who, who speak on this, preachers who speak on this topic, probably are going to refer to the revelation of Jesus Christ as being the second coming. Um, I don't agree with that, but I don't think that does any particular damage to the text. Uh, and it's not something that any way I would oppose. Uh, so if somebody else is teaching this class and they, they point you to the end of time here, uh, first of all, they may very well be right. So I'll, leave, I'll throw that out there. It's entirely possible I'm wrong on this and they're right. Entirely possible. Uh, I don't think it's the case. I don't think it's the case because if I did, I'd hold the other position. So I don't think it's right, but it very well could be. Um, but I don't, I, my, my problem here would be, let, let, let me tell you what my problem here would be. Sometimes, sometimes guys do this. And I'm not sure what the motivation of it is because I don't have that motivation. And since I don't have it, I don't know that I can explain it. But I do think at times people will come to a a phrase like that and they, they, they don't want to take a firm position on it. And so they'll say something like, well, in, in the you know, in, in the first century it might have been this, it might mean this, and and ultimately it may be the second coming, but we all experience revelations of Jesus in our lives as well. And so it can it can apply to different days and times in our lives. Okay. Of all the different views that somebody could take on what the revelation of Jesus Christ is, that's the one that would get me that would get my back up. That, that's the one that would make the little hairs on the back of my neck stand up if I'm sitting in the class. That, that That's just, I understand, I think I understand the desire there, okay? You're not wanting to offend anybody, not wanting to exclude everybody, and, and wanting to make the text immediate and make a direct application of it to people and so on. But in doing that, in, in trying to make texts like this mean all things to all people, effectively what you do is you take away any real meaning from the text. So I, I don't, this is a specific reference. This is not a generic reference. This does not say at the revelations of Jesus Christ. It does not say that. It says at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a singular appearance of Jesus, whether that be metaphorical uh, in, in, in terms of the fulfilling of the, um, 
a prophecy of his coming judgment, Matthew chapter 24. This gospel will be preached as witnessed among all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, you'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven before this generation passes. That's what verse 30 down to about verse 36 or so of Matthew 24. So that's somewhat of a metaphorical use of it. You'll see him coming in judgment. Or it's a reference to when we will actually see this, the, the, the actual physical sky rolled back and Jesus descending with, 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 the, with the angels in final judgment. That's much more literal. Okay, It's one of those two. Don't don't generalize this. That that's the only position that would that annoys me when people try to try to teach the text. It just take a position. All right, it, this is a singular revelation. I'll I'll live with you whatever position you take. I may not agree with you, and, but if you take a position and I take a position, at least then we can talk about it. <laughs> you know, at least then we can have a conversation that has some meaning to it, and we can analyze the text. And and you know, as iron sharpens iron, maybe we can learn something from each other. But don't don't take that middle of the road mushy position. It just it doesn't help anybody, in my opinion. It ruins the power of the text. It just ruins the the poignancy of the text when you do that. Peter has something specific in mind. Peter is pointing these people to something specific, and either it's that ultimate victory of Jesus at the end, or as I think makes more sense, for people going through the fiery trial, who wonder whether or not their faith is genuine. In less than 10 years, maybe as little as five, there's going to come an event in the lives of these people, which for that age was the ultimate declaration of the genuineness of their faith. And I believe that's what he's talking about. You set your hope fully on the predicted judgment that's coming. And when you see it, then you and the rest of the world will also know know that the testimony, the witness of the, of the, of the power of the Christ is true. That's what I think he's talking about here. So in order to get through this trial, be realistic about it. And secondly, set your hope fully on the promises of God. Now there's the general application of it. Okay, you want to make this, you want to make this text general. Take the two commands and make application of the two commands. The two commands are this: see the world properly. There's your sermon outline, right? Be sober-minded, set your world, your worldview properly. Don't have the wrong view of Christianity. And understand the grace, the promise that God has delivered to you. There are promises that are general for every Christian for all time that God has delivered to you. And if the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know, the third point of the sermon outline, if the revelation of Jesus Christ is AD 70, which I think it is, guess what? There is another promised revelation of Jesus Christ. And guess what that is? That's the time when every knee will bow before Jesus and every person will give an account for the deeds that are done in their body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. You want to get through trial, there, there's how you preach that, okay? You don't have to generalize the text and make it mushy to find an application. So simply because I think that revelation is talking about AD 70, in no way takes away the ability to tell people, hey, in a time of crisis, be sober-minded. Set hope fully on God and understand what his promises are to you. There's your three-point outline about how to handle trials. Okay, it's the same outline. You don't have to mush the text up to preach the same outline. Same application. Just leave the text where it is, man. Take a position. Sorry, got a little preachy there. Again, that's happened twice now. Okay, set your hope fully. I think the key word there is fully. Key, set your hope fully. 
what I'm trying, Peter, what I'm trying to get you to see is you have made the right choice. Be realistic about your circumstance and be wholly committed to the promise of the grace that's coming to you, the benefit that's going to happen to you when you get to the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? So we, now we are here in, in um, uh, verse, now I've got 13 minutes left. We'll start verse number 14. Let's see, let's see if y'all um, comments here real quick. Um, um, some good comments there, but I don't think anything I necessarily need to bring up on the screen right now. But anyway, uh, Christine and a couple others are talking back and forth there. Thank you. Thank you for your uh, uh, engagement there. Uh, let me go to verse 14. As obedient children, okay, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he says to them, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your for former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right. I have taken the position that the book of First Peter is largely Jewish. All right. If I were going to make the counter argument, this would be the first phrase in the book from which I would make the counter argument. Because that idea of the passions of your former ignorance sure sounds like he could be talking about Gentiles. Doesn't it? I mean, that's similar to some of the language you'll find what over in Galatians, uh, Galatians 4. Um, this is, again, what happens when you talk off your, off your top of your brain here. Um, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Um, you, um, yeah, but now that you've come to know God, or rather, are you are, are known by God, and so on. So, um, that I think that's that's close enough to the language that I was looking for in Galatians. Um, same idea, this idea that you were um, um, conformed to, or do, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So at some point in the past, they were ignorant of things, and those passions had a conformity to them. Okay, that's fair. If if somebody wants to to, to say this is written to Gentiles here, I'm not going to argue with it stringently, um, because I, I when I say the book is largely Jewish and that Peter is writing to the Jews, I also understand that if you look at the the regions into which Peter is writing, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, and so on, up there in verse one, uh, what we know of the churches in those regions is that they were mixed churches. So if he's writing the elect, the elect exiles, and again, I keep going back to Asia because we know the chief city of Asia is Ephesus, and so much of the Bible is written to uh, uh, to uh, people at Ephesus. We know that the church at Ephesus is made up of some Jews because there are disciples of of, uh, of John that are there that Paul baptizes properly. We know there are some Gentiles in Ephesus because Paul writes the book of Ephesians and addresses the Gentiles. So we know there's there are both. Well, if a letter from Peter shows up in Asia, and the church in Asia, or the church at Ephesus, rather, reads that letter, guess what? I'm pretty certain everybody's going to read it. Everybody's going to read it. And that would include, obviously, the Gentiles that are in, in Asia. So when I say this book is is largely uh, uh, Jewish, I'm not just suggesting that there's no, no appeal to the Gentiles or no Gentile language here at all. So if I were going to make the case that he's appealing directly to the Gentiles, this would be the first phrase in the book from which I would do it. I'm not sure that it is, though, because of the way that he defines what comes forward. 
okay? Here's your one path. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you should also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You see the connection that he's making here? We'll talk about more of this as we, well, actually, probably tomorrow because we've only got eight minutes left here. But you see what he's doing here? He talks about the, the conformity of their passions in their former ignorance. And then he immediately, in order to give them the contrast of that conformity to their previous ignorance, he quotes Old Testament scripture from Leviticus. You should be holy as I am holy. He then talks about the time of their exile. That's Jewish. So quoting the Old Testament, that's Jewish. A Jewish audience would be moved by an Old Testament quotation. Talking about the time of the exile, again, would be something that would appeal to exiles of the dispersion. And then, again, a reference back to the forefathers would be Jewish. And then a reference to the, what you have been redeemed with, ransomed with, the precious blood of lamb, like that of a lamb without spot or without blemish. Boy, who would care about the, the, a, a who would know about a lamb that is uh, without spot or without blemish? See that you just read that one phrase there. Your former ignorance and former ignorance just sounds like Gentiles, right? Because how could the Jews have a former ignorance? Fair enough. How would the Jews have a former ignorance? They had the oracles of God committed to them. That, that, that was their chief advantage, says Paul, much in every way. Under them were committed the oracles of God. How could they be ignorant? Well, have you ever considered how often the New Testament refers to the Jews and their ignorance in terms of the scriptures? John, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He, he, he's either telling them they don't know or expecting them to know. Jesus tells the, 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 to the, to, to the uh, what, John, um, to, 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 um, uh, uh, John 5. I don't have the verse on the top of my head. I think it's John 5. Jesus says to the Jews, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. He's not telling them to search the scriptures because they already had. He's telling them to search the scriptures because you've misunderstood the scriptures. You don't understand them. Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it's been said, but I say unto you, half a dozen times or so, Jesus says, you, you teach the law one way, I'm going to teach you the law a different way, because it's the right way. They didn't know the scriptures. When he when confronted by the Sadducees, and the talking about the resurrection, and this woman who's had the seven husbands, Jesus says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Time and time and time again, even in the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus looks to these people and says, listen, you don't understand my law. You don't understand it at all. Okay? And that's one of the things we tried to emphasize throughout our study of the book of Romans. I haven't asked you this in a few weeks because we haven't been in Romans, but what's our favorite passage in the book of Romans? 
9, 31, and 32. They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in attaining to it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They didn't get it. Paul then says to them, I, I bear witness about them. They have a zeal for God, <coughs> but not according to righteousness. And then look what he says. For being what? For being ignorant. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Paul says that the Jews were ignorant about the righteousness of God. So we go back here to 1 Peter. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former what? Ignorance. Tell me why that has to be Gentile. If the response to that ignorance is to remind them of Old Testament Scripture, if the response to that ignorance is to remind them of the exiled nature of the Jews, if the response to that, ex, uh, 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 that ignorance is a reflection on the forefathers, if the response to that ignorance is to the nature of the lamb that needs to be offered in sacrifice, guess what I think that ignorance is? I think that ignorance is Jewish. So while this is a phrase that many people will say indicates the Gentiles are, are directly included here in this book. Again, I'm not going to argue too, too stringently over it. I'm going to, you know, I'm, obviously I'm teaching the class this morning, so I'm going to tell you what I think about it. But I'm not going to argue with it too hard over it because obviously the Gentiles were ignorant of God's law. Clearly they were, right? But I don't, so I, let me say this way. I would not exclude them in terms of reading this text that, yeah, that they would, they, they, they could understand how they were ignorant or they needed to understand how they were ignorant, and their ignorance had passions that led them, that led them to, to a conformity to certain things that were wrong, right? But so were the Jews. They were ignorant of the law of God, and it led them to be conformed to passions. And passions, by the way, very similar to the passions of the, of the Gentiles. We haven't gone there yet in this study, but let's turn our attention back to Galatians 4 very quickly. Paul says about the Galatians, uh, Galatians, when we were children. Now, just to tie that connection here, notice how this section is introduced. As obedient children. Back in Galatians, when we were children, same metaphor. Okay, when we were children under the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And we made the point about what those were as we studied through Romans. I'm not going to take the time to go all through that because we talked about it for hours in our studies on Romans. But that elementary principle of the world is just that, the elemental principle, the base principles of how the world works. And that is a works-based life, a transactional-based life. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. If I do good to my gods, my gods will do good to me transactional, works-based approach to everything, okay? That's how the Jews looked at the law, Micah chapter 6, okay? If I, if I offer the first, my, firstborn for the, 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 my firstborn for the sins of my body, will God finally be pleased with me if I go that far? Transactional-based. If I do enough good, 
God will finally love me. If I do enough good, my wife will love me. If I do enough good, my, my, my parents will love me. If I do enough good, my, my, my boss will love me. Transactional base. And the Jews, while they were children, were enslaved, not to the law. The law didn't enslave people. The law freed people. But because they were ignorant of what was truly righteous under God's law, they were enslaved to the principles of the world. They treated the law of God like it was a law of the world. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, now we're talking to Gentiles. You were enslaved, so the Gentiles were enslaved as much as the Jews were, to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known God, how can you turn back again? Turn back again. To what? To the law? No, the Gentiles did not know God. They, were, they did not know God, and God did not know them. They were never under the law. You cannot turn back to the law if you were never under the law. What does Paul tell them they're about to turn back to? To the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, the same principles that the Jews were enslaved under. Different laws. The Jews had the law of God. The Gentiles had the law of the pagan gods. But they treated them exactly the same and ended up in exactly the same place, place because both were guilty of the same problem, and that was being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Remember what we're trying to prove in 1 Peter. Chapter 5, verse 12. I said in the opening of this hour, never forget when you read a book that tells you, this is why I wrote. I wrote that you, like I'm declaring and exhorting that you are standing, or you should be standing, in the true grace of God. What is your other option? Your other option is the false grace of God. That's the other option. And what is the false grace of God? It is your former ignorance. It is you Jews still trying to be enslaved under the principles of the Pharisees and the Judaizers. And their doctrine leads you to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's where you're heading. If you turn back now, that's what you're about to turn back into. You will not be holy. You will judge impartially. You will continue the time of your exile. You will not, or, or rather, actually, you will, you will live in the same feudal ways as your forefathers did, and you will not hold on to a, 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 a spotless and precious offering. You're going to forfeit everything that is true under the grace of God by turning back and living the way that you came out of when you accepted the gospel. Don't turn back to Judaistic ways. I think that's what he's saying here. And he uses all these elements of Judaism to prove the necessity of these peoples remaining true or faithful under the true grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that he says in verse 20, was known before the foundation of the world. Stay close to the true grace, not the false grace. So anyway, we will pick up here, Lord willing, in about verse 15 and actually look at these individual items more directly as we, uh, as we move forward, Lord willing, uh, to uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Uh, see if i got any questions there. Um, Andy says, in the introduction to the strangers, doesn't, doesn't that indicate more to Gentiles as opposed to James? 
to the 12 tribes? Uh, Andy, I don't think so, uh, largely because um, of particularly it's, it's the, the, the elect exiles, and I, I believe elect has a particular Jewish meaning from Romans chapter 8, um, but it's the, elect, it's the elect exiles of something. Now, the old King James uses strangers. ESV uses the term dispersion, um, and it is the word dysphoria. And that is a technical Jewish term. So it's not just a word. It's not a general word for stranger. And I think the, the old, I think old King James uses stranger here. Uh, I like the ESV's translation a lot better because this is of the dysphoria, uh, which would be a Jewish thing. The, the, the Jews are were scattered through the world by the dysphoria, uh, not the Gentiles. Uh, and so since Peter is the, the apostle to the Gentiles or to the Jews, according to Galatians 2, I would go the other direction. I think the term exiles of the dispersion here strongly identifies it as Jewish as, as opposed to the, um, um, to the other. <laughs> so that, that'd be my answer to that real quick. I, what does this mean, man? For the dinosaur Marvin, the king lizard. What? <laughs> Someone's going to have to help me with that. I feel like I've missed something. Oh, mercy. Okay. Okay, Andy, whatever that is, bro. I'll talk about it to you later, man. Um, anyway, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, and uh, thank you for your participation throughout the day. Unless somebody wants to give me a quick answer on what in the world Marvin the King Lizard is. I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting. I got a like 30 second lag here. I got 30 seconds. I can wait. You know? uh, but anyway, we will be back here, Lord willing, uh, this uh, tomorrow morning, continue this study together. Um, and he named... Oh, the nine might. <laughs> Got it. The the dinosaur on the shelf back there. Marvin the King Lizard. <laughs> you see, it was it had been more than 30 seconds, man. I, I had forgotten that I said that at the beginning of the hour. Uh Marvin the King Lizard. Until somebody gets me something better, we'll go with Marvin the King Lizard. Actually, we'll go with Marvin the King Lizard until Nathan shows back up here and plays with his dinosaur again. And I guarantee you it will not end up so neatly and, and carefully positioned on the uh, on the dresser back there. Anyway, all right, let's go ahead and wrap it up. I'll be back here tonight for, um, who did I announce? Eric Garner, I believe Eric Garner is on with us tonight for uh, the Connect meeting. Uh, and I will see you back here. I think Eric will be with us tonight. Uh, and so we will see you back here, uh, Lord willing, at seven o'clock tonight for, um, uh, for the continuation of the Connect meeting, and then I'll be back here tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock a.m. Eastern, as we have another hour of From the Deep End together starting then. So I'll see you back then. Until then, my prayer always that you'll go out and make your day a great one for God. Have a good day, everybody.